0: Warning, the following content may contain elements that are not suitable for some audiences. Accordingly, listener's discretion is advised.
1: Hi, I'm your host Jared, and with me is my co-host Michaela.
0: Hi guys, welcome to What the Criminology. Today we have a very disturbing case to talk about with you guys, especially for us, since we have a little one here at home. This is the case of Janine Jones, the killer nurse, or also known as the baby killer.
1: Yeah, this one hits very close to home for some of us, so we strongly suggest if you have a weak stomach, then this episode is not for you, and you can skip this week's episode.
0: But we do hope to see you in the next episode, now let's begin.
1: Janine was born on July 13, 1950, and was immediately given up for adoption. Her new parents were Dick and Gladys Jones, who adopted three other children as well, two older and one younger. They lived in a two-story, four-bedroom mansion just outside San Antonio. Dick was an entrepreneur and professional gambler. He worked in the entertainment business, operating nightclubs. Somewhat larger than life, he was free spending and generous, but this lifestyle eventually took a toll on his family. The nightclub went south, and there was less money to spend. Jones tried a restaurant, but that venture failed too. When Janine was 10, her father was arrested. It seems that a large safe had turned up missing from a home owned by a man who had been at Jones' club at the time of the burglary. There was $1,500 in cash and some valuable jewelry inside. A priest turned it over to police, protecting the one who had given it to him. But the police went after Dick Jones. He confessed but claimed the episode was a practical joke. The charges were dropped, then Jones opened the billboard business for Janine. Riding around in the truck with her father while he put up billboards was the happiest time of her life. She had a hard time getting attention. She felt left out and unfavored by her parents. She went around calling herself the family's black sheep
0: sometimes she would pretend to be ill in order to get people to notice and at school she became bossy she was short and overweight which added to her loneliness there were acquaintances who called her aggressive and friends who said she had betrayed them she was known for lying and manipulating people janine was close to her younger brother travis who loved to be in their father's shop When he was 14, he put together a pipe bomb that blew up in his face, killing him. Janine was 16 at the time, and during the funeral, she screamed and fainted. She had lost her closest companion. Some believe this trauma fed her peculiar cruelty. Others said she was just histrionic and grabbed any opportunity for attention. During her senior year of high school, Janine's father began to get sick. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer, refused treatment, and went home to die. He made it through Christmas, 1967, but died shortly after at the age of 56, just over a year after the death of Travis.
1: Janine was devastated, and though she hadn't yet finished high school, believed that the remedy to her pain and loss was to get married right away. She and her mother fought over it, and Gladys soon turned to the bottle. Getting drunk frequently, but refusing to give permission for Janine to marry. It was too soon after the family tragedies. Finally, when Janine graduated, she married a high school dropout, James Harvey Delaney Jr. He too was overweight, and he cared only about hot rods. After seven months of marriage, he enlisted in the Navy, and Janine, who was reportedly voracious in her desire for sex, was immediately unfaithful. Intense and dramatic, she went after other men, SF to fill the void left by her father's untimely death, and she bragged openly about it. She even had affairs with married men, and she began to spread rumors that she had been sexually abused as a child. She depended on her mother for money, so Gladys urged her to think about a career. With no real plans, Janine enrolled in beauty school. Jimmy returned from the Navy, and they had a child. After four years of marriage, she left her husband while he was recovering in the hospital from a boating accident. Her divorce papers indicated that he had been violent with her. They reconciled and then parted again for good.
0: Soon after, Janine's older brother died of cancer. It was yet another loss, and her developing fear of cancer from working with hair dyes made a career change necessary. She had worked in a hospital beauty salon so it wasn't a far stretch to train as a nurse. She was also pregnant, so now she had two children to care for. Although she had wanted children all her life, she ended up leaving them in the care of her adoptive mother. Janine had reserved her special ardor for doctors, seeing them as mysterious and powerful. She wanted to get near them, so she trained for a year to become a vocational nurse, an LVN, or licensed vocational nurse. She was good at it, although she was not altogether happy about being at the bottom of the medical totem pole. Her interest in medicine began to take on mystical dimensions, and as acquaintances put it, she became obsessed with diagnosing people. After only eight months at her first job at San Antonio's Methodist Hospital, she was fired in part because she tried to make decisions in areas where she had no authority, and in part because she made rude demands on a patient who subsequently complained. It wasn't difficult for her to find another job, but she didn't last long on that one either. Eventually, she was hired in the intensive care section of the pediatric unit of Bexar County Medical Center Hospital. It was here that she would leave her mark, a tragic one.
1: Janine worked as a nurse in the pediatric department of the Bexar County Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. She was well-respected and considered to be totally dedicated to the job of nursing sick babies. Even so, in the short period of May to December 1981, 20 babies died from either cardiac arrest or bleeding. Her first victim, while at Bexar County Medical, had a fatal intestinal condition. And when he died shortly thereafter, she went berserk. She brought a stool into the cubicle, where the body lay and sat staring at it. The other nurses could not understand her behavior. She hadn't even known the child and had barely been around him. So why the excessive grief? It soon became clear to associates that Janine liked to feel needed, and she would often spend long hours on the ward during her 3 to 11 p.m. shift, inciting that her attention was important to a certain patient. However, She skipped classes on the proper handling of drugs and in her first year made eight separate nursing errors, including while dispensing medication. She sometimes developed a dependency on sick children, so she would refuse specific orders because she wanted to do what was best for the child.
0: While there were sufficient grounds for dismissal, including coming in one night drunk, the head nurse, Pat Belko, liked and protected her which gave Jones a feeling of invincibility. She never liked to admit any mistakes, and now she had someone in power to back her up. She tried to bully new nurses into looking to her for help, and more than one nurse transferred out of the unit to get away from her. As she took charge, Janine grew more arrogant, aggressive, and foul-mouthed. She liked to talk about her sexual conquest, both past and future. Not many people liked her she would make harrowing predictions about which baby was going to die, which upset the new nurses she was training.
1: Then a new doctor came to the ward, James Robotham. Hired as the medical director of the pediatric intensive care unit, he took more responsibility for patients than other doctors had, and that meant edging out the nurses. He also made them more accountable, which didn't sit well with them, all except for Janine, welcomed the opportunity to bring more problems to someone's attention, because that meant attention for her. Her other means for getting notice was to go to outpatient clinics for minor physical complaints of her own. She did this 30 times in just over two years. Although she was never officially diagnosed, she may have been suffering from a form of Munchausen syndrome, in which people become hospital hobos, to get attention from caring staff that they feel they missed out on as children. Even when Janine wasn't at some county clinic, She was complaining about her health and seeking some leverage with it. One physician said her problems were psychosomatic.
0: Jones demanded to be put in charge of the sickest patients. That placed her close to those that died most often. She loved the excitement of an emergency and even seemed to enjoy the grief she experienced when a child didn't make it. She always wanted to take the corpse to the morgue. It became clear to everyone that children were dying in this unit from problems that shouldn't have been fatal. The need for resuscitation suddenly seemed constant. But only when jones was around those in most critical condition were all under her care one child had a seizure three days in a row but only on her shift she thought to herself quote, they're going to start thinking i'm the death nurse end quote. then a six-month-old baby named jose antonio flores went into cardiac arrest while in jones's care he was revived but went into arrest again the next day during her shift and died from bleeding test on the corpse indicated an overdose of a drug called heparin, an anticoagulant. No one had ordered
1: it. Then Rolando Santos, being treated for pneumonia, was having seizures, cardiac arrest, and extensive unexplained bleeding. All of his troubles developed or intensified on Jones' shift. Finally, one doctor stepped forward and told the hospital staff that she was killing children. They needed an investigation, yet the nurses protected her. Since the hospital did not want bad publicity, they accepted whatever the head nurse said. Another child was sent to the pediatrics unit to recover from open-heart surgery. At first, he progressed well, but on Jones' shift, he became lethargic. Then, his condition deteriorated, and he soon died. Jones grabbed a syringe and squirted fluid over the child in the sign of a cross, then repeated it on herself.
0: Finally, a committee was formed to look into the problem. They decided to replace the LBNs with RNs on the unit and Jones promptly resigned. To their mind, that took care of the problem. All it did was let her know that she could get away with medical abuse, and she moved on to the Kerrville Clinic. Despite the risk of exposure in such a small place to inject children to the point of seizures, she didn't stop. A number of investigations were conducted to look into the circumstances and to see if any improvements could be made which would reduce the infant mortality rate. To help them with their investigations, the members of the investigating team interviewed a number of hospital staff. No real conclusions had been reached when one nurse openly accused a colleague of being responsible for the death, as they had no real evidence to back this up. It was decided that the easiest way out of this would be to ask the nurse concerned to resign, which they did. The nurse in question was Nurse Janine Jones. Just to tidy up any loose ends, they also asked the nurse who had accused her to resign as well.
1: In 1982, Dr. Kathleen Holland opened a pediatrics clinic in Kerrville, Texas. She hired a licensed vocational nurse named Janine Ann Jones, who had recently resigned from Bexar County Medical Center Hospital. Although Dr. Holland was warned in veiled tones not to hire Janine Jones, She viewed Jones as a victim of the male-dominated patriarchy. She had no idea that by teaming up with this woman, she was about to kill her own career and her marriage. Petty McClellan took her blonde-blue-eyed baby daughter, Chelsea, into the new pediatric clinic. It was Friday, September 17, 1982. The clinic had just opened the day before in Kerrville, Texas, not far from the trailer home where she and her husband, Reed, lived. Chelsea was just eight months old, but she had a cold and her mother wanted to be safe. Chelsea had been born premature with underdeveloped lungs, so she was prone to infection. Early in her life, she had spent time on a hospital respirator. She had also experienced what Petty described as spells of losing her breath. Chelsea was the clinic's very first patient. The pediatric nurse, Jones, took the child to another area of the clinic to play with a ball, while Dr. Kathleen Holland talked to the mother. Soon after, Jones told them that Chelsea had stopped breathing. She placed an oxygen mask over the baby's face and they rushed her to an emergency room at nearby Sid Peterson Hospital. To everyone's relief, the child recovered. Chelsea's parents were grateful that such a competent nurse was on staff there. They spread the word to other parents. Nine months later,
0: Chelsea was the first appointment of the day. Just a routine checkup. Petty McClellan brought her around mid-morning and dr holland offered two standard vaccinations shortly after nurse janine jones injected the first needle chelsea started having trouble breathing it appeared that she was having a seizure so mcclellan asked her to stop jones ignored her and gave the child a second injection then chelsea stopped breathing altogether she jerked around as if trying to breathe and then went limp an ambulance was called and they transported chelsea to sid peterson hospital where she arrived in nine minutes with a breathing tube down her throat. Jones carried the child in her arms all the way there. Chelsea tried to remove the tube, so Dr. Holland replaced it with the larger one and then gave her something to make her sleep. Jones allegedly said, quote, and they said there wouldn't be any excitement when we came to Kerrville, end quote. In fact, there was to be plenty of excitement at that clinic, more than most clinics get, and Jones was always at the center.
1: Holland arranged transport for Chelsea to a hospital where neurological tests could be performed. And while she was in the ambulance, Chelsea stopped breathing again and her heart stopped. Jones gave her several injections while Dr. Holland performed a heart massage, but there was no response. They pulled into a nearby hospital and continued treatment. But after 20 minutes, it was clear that they had failed. Chelsea McClellan was dead jones sobbed over the body as she cleaned it up and wrapped it in a blanket for the mcclellans petty mcclellan believed that her daughter was merely asleep no matter what anyone said to her she could not come to terms with the fact that chelsea was dead
0: they all returned to sid peterson hospital and jones carried the child downstairs to the hospital morgue dr holland wanted an autopsy she was not going to just let this go as a cardiac arrest This whole thing had been too unusual. Chelsea had not ever come in with a complaint. She had been there for a routine examination. The autopsy was performed, and Holland waited for the result. In the meantime, the McClellands arranged the funeral. After a few weeks, it was determined that Chelsea had died of SIDS, an often fatal breathing dysfunction in babies. But new tests would later challenge that conclusion. Betty McClelland was unable to cope at the funeral she screamed and fainted and her relatives urged her to seek help from a psychiatrist thanks to that she had spent a considerable amount of time in a haze but the sharp grief had not yet dulled
1: one day a week after the funeral she went to the garden of memory cemetery to lay flowers on her daughter's grave as she approached the grave she saw the nurse from the clinic janine jones oddly she was kneeling at the foot of chelsea's grave sobbing and wailing the child's name over and over she rocked back and forth apparently in deep anguish as if chelsea had been her own daughter
0: what are you doing here
1: mcclellan asked did this nurse feel guilty about her role in chelsea's death perhaps she had neglected to do something that made the crucial difference confronted jones returned a blank stare as if in a trance and walked away without a word when she was gone McClellan noticed something else. While Jones had left a small token of flowers, she had taken a bow from Chelsea's grave. When a bottle of succinylcholine, a powerful muscle relaxant, had turned up missing, and then suddenly Janine Jones located it, Holland dismissed Jones, and was later to learn that the bottle had been filled with saline. In other words, someone had been using this dangerous drug.
0: In February 1983, a grand jury was convened to look into 47 suspicious deaths of children at Bexar County Medical Center Hospital that had occurred over a period of four years, the time when she had been a nurse there. A second grand jury organized hearings on the children from Holland's clinic. The body of Chelsea McClellan was exhumed and her tissues were tested. Her death appeared to have been caused by an ejection of the muscle relaxant. On February 15, 1982, Jones was convicted of murder. Later that year, she was found guilty of injuring another child by injection. The two sentences totaled 159 years. At trial, prosecutors presented Jones as having a hero complex. She needed to take the children to the edge of death and then bring them back so that she could be acclaimed their savior. One of her former colleagues reported that she wanted to get more sick children into the intensive care unit. They're out there, she supposedly said. Quote, all you have to do is find them, End quote. Yet her actions may have actually have been inspired by a more mundane motive. The children couldn't tell on her. They were at her mercy. So she was free to recreate emergencies over and over. In a statistical report presented at the second trial, An investigator stated that children were 25 percent more likely to have a cardiac arrest when jones was in charge and 10 percent more likely to die
1: jones came up for parole after 10 years but relatives of chelsea mcclellan successfully fought to keep her behind bars where she would remain until at least 2009 when she would again be eligible for parole in january of 2020 Jones pleaded guilty to the December 1981 death of 11-month-old Joshua Earl Sawyer. She was scheduled to go on trial on February of 2020 in the murder case. As part of the plea agreement, the remaining charges in the deaths of four other babies were dismissed. The agreement also allows for Jones to get her Bible back that was confiscated by prosecutors for use as evidence during the trial. The plea deal doesn't come close to what you did to these families and the tragedies that you caused. You took God's most precious gifts, babies, defenseless babies. District Judge Frank J. Castro said, quote, I'm going to follow this agreement that you agreed with your attorney and state, but I truly believe that your ultimate judgment is in the next life, End quote. Janine Jones will be eligible for parole after serving 20 years in prison. She will be 87 years old at the time of her release. The odds are she will be taking her last breath in prison. No one will ever truly know the number of victims she truly claimed. But some...
0: And that'll do it for this episode of What the Criminology. Don't forget to find us on Facebook at What the Criminology. You can also find our podcast on Anchor FM, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and Spotify. You can always send us an email at whatthecriminology@gmail.com at gmo.com if you have any questions or comments about this case, or you can also leave us a suggestion on any cases you'd like to hear in future episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a killer weekend. Bye!